if I do leave Morgan Stanley and join Morning Brew full time, what are my options if yep. Morning Brew fails? Yep. Like, what's the worst case scenario? And yep. what I basically said to myself is odds are, statistically speaking, with startups, this is going to fail and it's going to fail in the first, you know, six to 12 months. You're listening to Hawk Talk, a podcast all about the origin stories of the most interesting people in the world. Today, you know our guests as famous athletes, authors, and entrepreneurs, but there's so much more to this story. Let's get into today's interview with your host, Eric Huberman. All right, you're listening to Hawk Talk. I'm here today with Alex Lieberman. How are you? Thanks for uh, having me on the show. Of course, of course. Excited to have you. So got to start it out. Like the day you were born, did you come out and then like write a review on the birthing process? Like where did this all start? Take me back. <laughs> I, I love that. Honestly, the odds were better that uh, I would pop out and uh, say what my view was on like Apple stock or something. There you go. Yeah. <laughs> Given I grew up in a Wall Street family, the fact that I didn't, you know, come out with uh, with a, a bag of dollar bills in my little hand, like that that's more the uh, the shocking thing to me. Born on but, Wall um, Street. Yeah. So yeah. are you from New York? Is that where you're originally from? I'm from uh, New Jersey originally, from okay. Livingston, New Jersey, suburb, yep. like 40 minutes outside of the city. Um, but I grew up going to the city my whole life. Uh, uh -huh. You know, my mom, my dad, my grandpa all worked on Wall Street. Okay. Um, my dad was at Citigroup. My mom was at Nomura, a Japanese bank. And mm -hmm. my grandpa was at Prudential. And so I just grew wow. up like going to the trading floor. I vividly remember like playing uh, poker with uh, my dad's friends on like on the floor at his desk. Um, and so, yeah, I would go into the city. I don't know, once uh, once a week for many years, either to go to their offices or we'd like go to Broadway shows on the weekends. Got it. And so what what age did that start? Like what age were you exposed to the training for? Was it like it's too was, early? Yeah. <laughs> um, uh, all, all I know is I started reading the Wall Street Journal uh, before I was bar mitzvahed. So it was wow. It was very early. I. Uh, you know, dinner conversations in the Lieberman household were, uh, at least from my view, pretty dry because we were talking about like the housing crisis and mortgage-backed securities. Um, yeah. But uh, yeah, it's it started early. I can't remember the exact age, but all I know is that like for the forever, I wanted to just be like my parents um, because I, I was going to ask. So that opened it up. Like you were passionate about it. Yeah, I mean, I don't think I even knew what passion meant. Sure. I just knew that. Like I was brought up being told that family is the most important thing in your life. Mm -hmm. And my parents and my grandparents were my role models. And the only thing I saw, like I didn't see multiple types of jobs. I literally just saw sales and trading as what everyone did. So I just assumed that was the job that you do if you want to be successful. And um, it, yeah. Did you start doing anything of the sort as a young kid or, or anything entrepreneurial? Like, did you start your own stock portfolio when you were 10? So, so, um, I started, uh, investing in stocks probably in middle school. Um, I, I remember the first stock that I bought as part of a stock market game was, um, was taser T A S R it's literally like the taser company. Yeah. Um, and then, uh, I remember like the first stock I bought for real was Chesapeake energy, which Carl icon ended up investing in. And that was like a whole crazy story in itself. But I'd actually say that like, I more than being fo like doing things related to the markets, even though that was always my dream, I was more just like creative and entrepreneurial in that way, where like, I always think back to, um, I think it was in second grade, it was 
Mrs. Healy's class in uh, Harrison Elementary where I had the thought to myself, I was like, I, I was like, I take my pen and my highlighter out of my uh, writing utensil bag every day uh, and my out of my pencil case. What's a writing utensil bag <laughs> out of my pen, <laughs> out of my pencil case. And I'm like, why isn't this just one thing? So I literally went home and I started chopping up pens like I would cut them in half. And yeah. I started attaching them to highlighters. And I was like, I'm a freaking genius. I just made a two in one pen highlighter mix. I've never seen that done. <laughs> and I thought I was brilliant. And then at Sleepaway Camp, I had a shoe shining business. So I think I was like, you know, I don't think it was to the extreme of some people you hear their like origin stories and they're like, I was just a straight up hustler doing everything. Like, I think I, I almost feel like it was more like an entrepreneurial romantic. Like, I just like liked doing yep. interesting, creative shit. That makes sense. And so, did you, first off, I have to ask, Chesapeake Energy, how do you, as a middle schooler, how do you decide to invest in some obscure energy company? It, it's a great question. Uh, I think the reason was that I'd read an article about how natural gas was going to become bigger and bigger, and that uh, the United States was going to become an even bigger producer of natural gas. Like, I just read an article about where trends were going, and we were going to become uh, a league leader in natural gas. So then I looked up. What is a company that has a large portion of their operations are in uh, extracting natural gas? Mm -hmm. um, and Chesapeake Energy ended up coming up. Um, and so I bought the stock and it ended up going up because Carl Icahn yeah. is like known as basically the corporate raider who yep. just like runs a super tight ship and make sure like he just makes sure he makes money on his investment. And so the stock shot up a ton when he invested. Um, I can't remember what I ended up selling it at, but. It was obviously such an, the feeling of taking an intellectual bet and being yep. right was a very uh, addicting feeling. It's addicting, but I also think there's got to be a reinforcement there in terms of just your overall confidence of like, oh, wait, I just made a, how old were you? You said like 11, 12? Yeah, about. exactly. You're 11, 12 years old. You're watching your parents, your grandparents tackle this crazy problem of trading. And you're like, I'm going to make a bet. And your first one is like a huge winner because I know who Carl Icahn is. And like, yeah, that's a, to invest before him and then him come make the move after you. It's a totally. big, big move. <laughs> and, and, and what I will say is like, I think, um, you know, I, I wish I had thought about this concept in such a profound way back then, but like, to your point, it's, uh, this feeling of a big win. It, I, I've realized over time how important that is yeah. for like creating momentum in yeah. building a business or like any new thing you're diving into, the more you can get reps and take like, basically bets that don't bring down the ship, but have the yeah. opportunity for you to prove that you were right in the bet you took. Like yep. that is so incredibly important for building up momentum. Yeah, no, I think those are wise words, having small wins along the way that feel like momentum, that are momentum, that you can continue to take those bets. And I think people talk about entrepreneurship is so risky and it's like, I, don't bet the farm on any every one of these or yeah. any of them, but definitely make bets over and over and over again. And totally. And, and, and yeah. And, and look, <clears throat> I, um, I never try to make it out as if the, the risk that Austin and I took with mm -hmm. going full-time on morning brew that anyone could take that because I'm, I'm very transparent about the fact that like, it didn't feel like a big risk for me, but the reason it didn't feel like a big risk for me is I came from uh, a family in a background where I knew if morning brew failed, that I wouldn't be on the street, that my family yeah. would take care of me. Not everyone has that luxury. And so I kind of separate two things. I think 
starting a business or starting a side hustle or entrepreneurship in general is lower risk than it's ever been. It is at like the peak of yep. call it like risk profile, yep. but my ability to take the risk, I think is very specific to just my upbringing. Yeah, no. And I, I agree with that. I think like to, and I, I kind of hate this word these days because it's such a cliche, but to ignore your privilege yeah. is also yeah. obnoxious in some ways. Like totally. it's, I'm, I'm the same way. I was brought up by a family of success, a family that made their success as I grew up, but you know, the fall, I was never going to be homeless. Yep. hundred so, percent. Yeah. There's a big part of that. So you, you know, you're growing up, you, uh, you know, you trade a little bit, you like entrepreneurial ideas. Like, did you end up building any little businesses when you're, as you said, you weren't necessarily that hustler. Like a lot of these people have the story, but where were your interests in high school? Let's go to that. Yeah. So I would say in high school, if I'm being honest, I, um, (laughs) when I reflect on my high school experience, like what I don't remember is any business that I started. What I do remember is how hard high school was for me. Uh-huh. Um, high school is very difficult for me. Um, you know, I went to a small private school in New Jersey. My graduating class was 120 people. Mm-hmm. Uh, I was one of the youngest people. I was the oldest child in my family. So I had no like older sibling to kind of like show me the ropes. And, <laughs> and, so much in common on and, this. And, 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 and so I. So when's I your had, birthday, by the way? July of 93. So most people were 92 yeah, um, in, in my grade. And, and so honestly, I hated high school. Yeah. Um, I hated high school. I never felt like I was a part of any group. Um, I was bullied in high school. I felt like I was inadequate because most of the people who went to my private school were people who got like back when the SAT was uh, out of 2,400, people were getting like 2,300s while being a star soccer player who went to Harvard. It's so like yeah. me graduating with like B and B pluses and going to Michigan was just mediocre for my grade. And I never felt like I belonged. Mm-hmm. And, and so <clears throat> Michigan's a great school, obviously. <laughs> yeah. I mean, it's so interesting, right? Because like, I was really excited to go to Michigan when I got in, but I also, <clears throat> Michigan wasn't my first choice. My first choice was Emory. Uh-huh. And my first, and I, my first choice was Emory because that's what felt like most similar to my high school. And honestly, probably felt like most yeah. acceptable in my high school. And then I got rejected from Emory and I was like, oh, the world is over. Yeah. Uh, obviously the world wasn't over. I got into Michigan um, and it was the best thing. It was the best experience, but I was the first person in six years from my high school to go to Michigan. Like it was unheard of to yeah. go to a big 10 school. Everyone, a third of my grade went Ivy league. A third of my grade went Nezcacs, like Colgate, Middlebury, et cetera. And then a third was like the, the toss up group. Yeah. Um, and so I don't remember high school for entrepreneurial experiences. Honestly, I remember high school for like kind of creating like armor around me, like kind of like callousing my emotions. And I think that was, that is both a good thing and a bad thing. I think it's, I think it's, um, it can be a challenge in life. Because mm-hmm. I think experiencing and feeling the range of emotions is really important. Um, but I think as related to business, I think it gave me a chip on my shoulder as yep. I went to ultimately build Morning Brew. It made me very level-headed. And uh, I like to use the word like unfuckable, like nothing yeah. could fuck with me when we were building. Um so I, I like to think about like how even these shitty experiences really paint this picture of the character you turn into. But yeah, high school sucked for me. Yeah, no, it's interesting. And so when you went to college and going to Michigan, were you still on the track of like, I think I'm going to be a trader. I'm going to go on Wall Street. 
Yeah. So, I mean, like literally, you know, in my room throughout high school, had a whiteboard on my wall on that whiteboard was like my bucket list on that bucket list was be the best trader in the world. And, and again, it was like, it was such a conceptual thing because I didn't even know what trading was. I just know, knew my family did it. And so I went to Michigan. Um, I applied to the business school after the start of, after freshman year. Um, So you apply freshman year, you find out at the end of freshman year and you're in the business program, sophomore, junior, senior year. Mm -hmm. So I got into the business program. I did internships in finance after freshman year, sophomore year, and junior year. And I was just like on the track to work in sales and trading. Yep. Got it. And so during that time, did you start to explore more? Like what were, what were your, other than going to class, what were you doing in college? What was interesting to you? Were you having fun? What was, what was going yeah. on? So I, um, you know, I tried to get involved as, as in as many extracurriculars as possible. Um, okay. And I would say it was partially authentic, partially inauthentic. And what I mean by that is like, I really did want to experience new things and try new stuff out. It was yeah. inauthentic in the fact that like I, we were very much trained in the undergrad business program at Michigan to like pat, like make the resume look as good as humanly possible. And a new extracurriculars were an yeah. important part of that. Yeah. So extra, <clears throat> extracurricularly, I was part of a social fraternity. Mm-hmm. Um, I, which one? Uh, AEPI. So nice. one of like the, the three Jewish ones on yeah. campus. Um, I was in an Israeli investment club called Tamid. Um, I was, I somehow became the executive director of a magazine on campus called consider, which again, like the most ironic thing of all of this, Yeah, like consider was the most wild card thing for me to do in college. Yet it was the most relevant experience that actually, I think of all my classes gave me experience that helped me in building morning brew. That's amazing. And how'd that, how'd that happen? Like, what was it about it? initially thought about it as a resume builder. And then I got involved and I loved it where like someone in my fraternity, uh, who works in finance. Now he reached out to me and he's like, Hey, my friend is the executive director of this publication on campus. It's a, it's a two, basically it's a two page physical magazine that comes out where it's point and counterpoint where they pick a hot button issue, like uh, legalization of weed or prostitution. And there's a point for why weed should be legalized and a counterpoint for why it shouldn't. And it's written by two experts. It's effectively a written debate. Um, And he was basically like the executive director is looking for someone to fill their shoes. Once they graduate, are you interested in applying? So I applied, I interviewed. And for whatever reason, I had zero editorial experience, zero creative experience, but they were just like, yeah, okay, do this. And so I became executive director of consider and it was, it's, I mean, it's just wild. Like it was my first entry into media other yeah. than being a consumer of like the wall street journal and movies sure. my whole life. Like this was my first entree into media. And I had to think about everything from like, how does the art team work with the editorial team? How are we sourcing op-eds and how are we editing them in a way that is consistent with like our tone and voice? Um, like how are we thinking about distribution around campus and how are we making consider bigger given is it is a physical publication. Um, and I, you know, what I'll say is like, I think that most jobs are teachable and hireable, but I think something that started with consider that I really think is a hard to train thing that I learned just from building the brew is taste and like being a, t- a great tastemaker of your brand 
And so like, I think now, you know, being able to identify great talent that can create great content yeah. for our company. I think that started with being able to identify great talent and writing and art in college, like my junior year. Well, it, you know, they talk about it in outliers, like why uh, Malcolm Gladwell talks about like Steve Jobs having access to, I think it was, it was IBM. And then yep. um, Bill Gates having one of the first computer labs in middle school history. Exactly. Like being in that, in that yeah. school that had yeah. that computer. Right. And so for you, like being, you know, getting into media, but like being a part of the college media where you didn't expect it, et cetera, but you got years of experience before you even came out of there in something that a lot of people would start their progress the day they graduate, maybe. Yeah. And I think also that's such a specific thing here to that point is like, I didn't get experience like on the school newspaper or right. like in an internship with like the Wall Street Journal where I would have been basically uh, exposed to what the... Um, what, what just the conventions of the industry were. Yeah. I was somehow exposed to media and content, but, but still was able to keep my ability to be an independent thinker because I was naive to how the industry worked. And that yeah. was like such a, it was, right? It was like threading a needle with that experience. Well, and it's so important because then when you, you kind of approach things from a logic base versus taking it for granted. So I'm sure we'll get into it, but how you built your business morning brew, like I'm sure there's things there that are not traditional the way. Oh, you're totally. Yeah. yeah. So, all right. So you go through the college experience. You have this. Um, did you get out ready to go to Wall Street? What Was that still? So I, went, I went to Wall Street. You did. Um, what yeah, year so, did you graduate college? Uh, 2015. Okay. Got it. So I graduated 2015. Austin graduated 2017. And basically okay. what happened was the, the junior year internship for finance is like the, the big year because right. that's the year where you find out if you get a return offer. And if you get a return offer, you basically are made part of a two-year analyst program after college. Uh -huh. So I had interned at Morgan Stanley in sales and trading my junior year. I got a uh, an offer uh, to return back and my, getting the offer the day of my offer, that's like a whole absurd story myself. It's a great lesson in not being late for things. Um, and so wait, wait, we got to hear this then. I want to hear the lesson on not being late. For I, <laughs> I mean, basically the, the long story short is that um, the, the last day of the internship, there's like uh, a party um, for the whole intern class. And at the end of the party, HR gives you like a, a sheet of paper that says your time slot for meeting with uh, basically all the people in a room that are going to tell you whether you received an offer or not. Yeah. And so I think my time was 1115. And so, uh, I go home, I go to sleep, wake up at like, I don't know, 7am the next day, give myself plenty of time to be able to get ready to go to my exit interview. That's what it was called. Yeah. And I do a workout just to make sure I'm feeling good. I cook breakfast and, you know, 7am somehow turns to like, 8 a.m. Then 9 a.m. gets to like 10:15. So it's like 10:15, and I'm like, oh wow, I only have an hour now. Like, let me get ready. So I get ready. It's like 10:30, and I'm like, okay, I have 45 minutes to get there. Um, I'm not gonna take the subway because I'm worried that like the subway in Manhattan is gonna be broken down and some yeah. delay is gonna cause an issue. So I decide I'm gonna take a cab. Yeah. Issue is that taking a cab at like 10:45 or 11 o'clock on a weekday is actually way worse than taking the subway. Like I had been used to taking the subway or cab at like 530 in the morning. That's when I was typically waking up. So long story short, it's basically I'm in this cab, get in at Hudson Street in Tribeca. The office is in Times Square on 47th Street. So it's basically yeah. like 
60 blocks. Yeah. And um, I end up, it's 11.05 and we're in gridlock traffic on, call it like, you know, like second street or something. Yeah. And yeah. we have, and we have 40 blocks to go. Yeah. And so I decide with like 10, 10 minutes to spare, I'm like, I can't stay in this traffic. So I literally get out of the cab in full suit with my backpack and my portfolio. And I sprint uh, all the way to 47th street in full on suit and work shoes and everything. I get to the building. I go up to the floor. Say my, I said my time was 1115. I get there at 1117. And basically oh, wow. there's yeah. Oh yeah. That's it was a fast like sprint, by the way, that's a, you got there quick. You're, you're a fast runner, man. <laughs> I, I mean, I, I ran as fast as I could possibly run yeah. and uh, I get there and there's two rooms. There's like the holding room where all the interns that are waiting for the time are. And then the room where you meet with HR and stuff. Yeah. And I get to the holding room. I see one of the HR people and I'm like, you know, so-and-so I'm so sorry for being late. Like I, it's unacceptable. And they basically said to me, you know, we knew everyone was going to do this. So the time slot we gave you is 15 minutes ahead of your actual time. So I actually was 13 minutes early, Thank but you. the worst part about all this is like, I was freaking profusely sweating yeah. and it, I, I was sweating to the point where nothing was going to stop me sweating where yeah. I went to the back where they were holding the waters and I had a stack of cocktail napkins and I was patting myself the whole time. And the, what ended up happening was I get in the meeting, I did get the job, but I had to pat myself with cocktail napkins the entire time that I'm meeting with my boss in HR to tell me I have a job. And the way the conversation ended is I was saying to them how excited I was. And then at the end of it, I feel a bead of sweat going from my head, down my face, to my chin, drops onto my offer letter folder. And they're like, okay, you can get out of here now. <laughs> oh, that's so funny. And they probably thought it was, did you tell them you ran the whole way or did you just let them? I, I, I told them, I told okay. them I sprinted the whole way and they're just like, you're an idiot. <laughs> so anyway. No, commitment. I think, you know, as an employer now, if someone did that to me and they were two <laughs> minutes late, but they sprinted all the way, I'm like, we're good. It's all good. <laughs> exactly. And so, you know, I, I'm also someone who historically had trouble with being on time. And, yeah. But I knew, like, I try as much as possible to not be late now because for me, it's like, at the end of the day, like, all you have is your word. And you, if you can't keep yeah. your word, it like, it's just, not only is it disrespectful to the other person, it's like such a shitty feeling for yourself as yeah. an individual if you can't keep your word. And so uh, anyway, got the job uh, at Morgan Stanley, um, graduated from college uh, senior year, 2015. And what happened was after, when I got back to Michigan during my senior year, I had all this abundance of time because I'd got my job offer to Morgan Stanley. So I didn't have to recruit and I was only taking two classes. And so I started helping students prepare for job interviews to just pass the time. Yeah. And I would always in doing these mock interviews, I would ask the question, how do you keep up with the business world? That was always like the layup question I would ask. And the, the long story short, in asking that question, dozens of students had the same answer where they'd effectively say, I read the Wall Street Journal. And I would say, why? And they would say, because my parents told me to, and it's a prerequisite. And I would say, do you enjoy it? And they would say, no, I don't, I can't even finish it, but it's all that I have. It's what I'm expected to read. And so at some point I was like, this is crazy. These kids are working their asses off to have careers in business, yet they don't have content that story tells the business world and gets them excited for it. Yep. So I started writing a daily business roundup. It was called Market Corner. It was a Microsoft Word template that I would type up every day, convert it to a PDF, attach it to an email that I would send to a listserv. The listserv was the market corner at umich.edu. And what ended up happening was 
you know, called 500 students signed up for it manually, meaning there was no website. You had to message me saying, Hey, Alex, uh, heard about your write-up. Can you add me to your listserv? And I would type in their email addresses. (laughs) And what ended up happening was it was towards the end of first semester, my senior year. And, uh, I sent an email to the listserv group saying, Hey, I'm thinking about just like putting more time into market corner. There's a lot of readers. I want to take this a little bit more seriously. If you're interested in helping, shoot me an email and we'll talk. And one of the first emails I got was from Austin Reef. Uh, and Austin Reef was like, I have ideas for how this could be better. Let's meet up. So we met up in the winter garden, which is like the main area of the business school at Michigan. And Austin basically ripped apart the newsletter. And it was the first time that I had actually received actual feedback on my product. Not like you're doing great. Give yourself a pat on the back. It was like, No, this is how the tone can be better. This is how the story selection can be better. This is how the presentation could be be better. And I was like, honestly, I was super attracted to the way that Austin thought because I was like, this is so different from how I think. Like I am 10 different ideas, more like a hundred different ideas going in different directions at once. Um, I am very much a divergent thinker. And Austin was like the definition of a convergent thinker, super focused, super linear, super analytical. And I was like, to surround myself with this, I didn't even think about it as a business at the time, but I was just like, even for this project, uh, it would be really cool to work with someone who thinks so differently. And so that's how Austin and I met. We rebranded and relaunched Market Corner as Morning Brew in in March of 2015. That was when the first Uh email newsletter went out. Um, and we got it by the end of my senior year to, I want to say we were at 5,000 subscribers. And so when I graduated. So did you change systems or were people still manually emailing you? To get no, that? no, we changed systems. So we ended up switching to MailChimp. We had a landing page. It was morningbrewdaily.com. Uh, I think the first background of the landing page was like me in a suit holding a mug. Um, <laughs> and what ended up happening was... Uh, I, I graduated and I was like, I, I didn't even think about going full-time on the brew at the time because we had 5,000 subscribers. I had my dream job that I'd worked my entire life for. And I couldn't imagine telling my overprotective Jewish mom that I was going to quit my cushy finance job to, to write a newsletter. Like it was just such yeah. a, it wasn't even a thought. So I went and joined Morgan Stanley in 2015, uh, started working there, call it June of 2015. And I was at Morgan Stanley for call it a year and two months before quitting. Um, and it was quite the experience. It was quite the experience. Uh, and so you're talking about the, the risk of quitting. Like at what point was the business at? Was like, oh, it's making money. We're good. Like, you know, nope. soft landing. Was, nope. was not making money. Um, so let's talk so, about that jump, that leap. Cause I do, I will say a lot of people assume the leap, but of all the interviews I've had, I don't normally hear the, the true leap of faith of, I don't have any soft landing here, but I'm going for it. Yeah. You know, it's, um, it's the type of thing where I always say the way, the way that I decided to make the leap, it, I make it sound very clean like it happened in a day, but it really was like 10 months mm-hmm. of being in this job. I reflected a ton on this. And basically I'll, I'll paint a picture of what my average day was and like how I reflected on the job. Basically was in sales and trading. I was on the trading desk, trading agency mortgages. It was a super quantitative uh, product, uh, very much out of my like depth of knowledge or superpowers. Like everyone on the desk 
was a math major from MIT, Brown, or another Ivy League. Uh, and, and I would wake up at 5.11 every day. I would go, I slept in my first apartment in the city was a five bedroom. That was really a why 5.11, by the way, why is that the time? Uh, uh, I'm weird. And I just, that, that was the time I set my alarm at, I would pick, I would pick an odd number. It It would actually be like, I would set four alarms because I'm very OCD about things. So I'd be, it would do 5.11, 5.12, 5.13, 5.14. And the reason was, is I was so scared shitless of not, of missing my alarm and not making it to work one day. That never happened, but that was always something that gave me anxiety. Yeah. And um, so I'd wake up at 5.11. I was living in a five bedroom in New York City with some of my friends from Michigan. It was actually a true two bedroom. And when I say a true two bedroom, meaning only two of the rooms had a window. Three of the rooms were on the interior of the building. Uh-huh. So at five eleven, I was waking up to no natural sunlight because yeah. I was in basically a cave. Yeah, I'd wake up, go to the office, work out at the gym in Morgan Stanley, get to the desk around six thirty a.m. Would yeah. be there until until call it like seven thirty. Would come back home, make dinner, call it like eight thirty. I'd be working on the brew until call it like eleven thirty, mm-hmm. and then I would go to sleep. And that was my life for called a year and two months. And a number of things happened. One is I was miserable. Um, I was miserable for two reasons. One is because I hated my first boss. Uh, They they just, it was the opposite of what I thought good leadership looked like. Did not mentor, did not care about me growing, only cared about making money for themselves. And I was an obstacle to them doing that because I was a young person who was trying to learn and make mistakes and I was making mistakes. Yep. So that was one. The second is I really believe in other than being in a job where you really like your first boss. Like I actually think first boss matters than first company or first yeah. whatever. I also think that being in something that leverages at least one of your skills that you know is within your like circle of competence is really important. And I wasn't leveraging any of that. Like I knew at at that point, I realized like, I like being creative in some way. Like I like leveraging kind of like this more marketing or storyteller mind. Mm -hmm. And there was no opportunity to do that on my desk. And so I remember getting home from work every day and being like to my mom, I was like, like, I don't know what to do. Like I, I don't know what to do. I'm not liking this. <laughs> I'm not going to be the best trader in the world because I'm not enjoying this. And um, what would she say? I don't think she had, if I remember correctly, she didn't have the answer. She would just try to like, listen, mm-hmm. calm me down and be like, it's going to be okay. Um, and what ended up happening was, I can't remember the exact dates of this, but basically in that year, Austin was a senior at Michigan. He had gotten a job offer to work at Molis, the investment bank, um, and he basically had to make a decision whether he was going to go there full time or not. And another great job. Uh, yeah, great uh, he. I mean, he was going to make more than I was making in in trading. And also, by the way, it was an even bigger risk for him because he didn't even start at a job. Right. He was talking about doing this right out of college, making nothing, no nothing on his resume. And so what ended up happening is Austin flew to New York one weekend and we met up at an old bar in New York city on Irving place. And him and I just talked about what we're going to do. And in that moment, or like in that experience, we decided we're going to go full-time on the brew. Um, Again, there were a lot of things that led up to thinking about that. 
And what? where were you at that point, subscriber-wise? So you were 5,000 when you graduated, right? So yeah. a year later, where were you? Yeah, yeah. so I always said that I would quit when we got to 100,000. Mm-hmm. I quit when we were at 30,000. Yeah, nice. <laughs> yeah, so, it, it, you know, um, it's like maybe always in my heart I knew it would be earlier. But well, yeah, I mean, when you set a goal like that, that means you're going to quit. So yeah. jumping the gun a little bit can happen. <laughs> exactly. Um, and so there were a few things that went into this decision. The first thing is that I felt unhappy because I was diluting myself and I felt like I was doing a mediocre job in trading and a mediocre job with morning brew because I couldn't give 110% effort to either. And to me, that's what I've always felt like was kind of what gave me the ability to do like really well in whether it be sports or in, in college was just outworking people, but I couldn't outwork people. And so I knew something had to change. I knew there was going to be a fork. And then the Austin conversation and his necessity to make a decision is kind of just like what accelerated that. Yeah, perfect. And the, and the way I made the decision was uh, there were a few factors. One I said to myself was, what would I more regret? Would I more regret staying at Morgan Stanley and watching someone else build CNBC and the Wall Street Journal for our generation? Yeah. Or would I more regret leaving Morgan Stanley, Morning Brew failing, and then not being able to get my job back at Morgan Stanley? And to me, it was very clear uh, that I would more regret the former of not of watching someone build what we were enjoying building. So that was the first. The second is I thought about things in terms of regret, where I was just like, or sorry, I, I thought about things in terms of uh, options, meaning if I do leave Morgan Stanley and join morning brew full-time what are my options if yep. morning brew fails yep. like what's the worst case scenario and yep. what i basically said to myself is odds are statistically speaking with startups this is going to fail and it's going to fail in the first you know six to 12 months and yep. if it does that then i was like okay first of all if i haven't burned every bridge potentially i can go back to morgan stanley with just a, an experience as an entrepreneur that actually can help me in decision making in my job but i was like okay let's say i burned every bridge well second maybe I can go to business school because it's a good business school story. It was like yeah. maybe third, I've met other people in the startup scene in New York uh, and I join another startup or start another one. And yeah. I basically got three or four options down. And I was like, if none of these work out, it actually has nothing to do with morning brew. It has to do with my ability to maintain relationships and a network and keep yeah. options open. And so it has nothing to do with the business. Yep. And then the third and final way that I thought about it, and I would say this is probably, if I'm being honest with myself, the thing that most motivated me to do the brew full time is, uh, you know, losing my dad. Uh, I lost my dad when I was a junior in college or right a week before junior year. Mm -hmm. And I mean, I think that just changed a lot of perspective for me in a number of ways. One, it just made me realize that I really do need to spend time on things that at least directionally, I enjoy a lot of the time because life's, life's too short. Like, you know, my dad was perfect health, 49 and like, looks like you or I. And so you just never know. And so that was one piece of it. The second piece of it is probably actually a decision that came from a place of fear because I was trading agency mortgages, which is what my dad traded for 20 plus years. And so I was like, this feels like deja vu. Like, like this just feels like I'm just living my dad's life. What's going to happen. Yeah. And the third thing was, I, I think, more of 
not just my perception changed on doing things that feel meaningful and matter, but also a feeling of obligation to family, right? Like, even though, I, as I had mentioned before, that I, I am privileged and I came from a background where I didn't have to worry about money, my mind didn't process that. And all my mind processed was my dad passed away. There's no more cash inflow in the Lieberman household. There's only cash outflow. It yeah. is my responsibility to make sure everyone is taken care of. Yeah. And so I, I attribute a lot of my time spent on Morning Brew over the last six years to making sure that my family was taken care of. Whether or not it was a rational thought or not, I think yeah. that is what gave me. That is one of the things that I think um, gave me a fire under my ass to just honestly be able to work forever. Not necessarily like work until burnout, but like if I had to work on achieving the mission for 50 years, yeah. I would do it. Yep. No, that makes sense. And it's those unique things that drive that. And it's, I've heard that a lot. I lost my dad actually just a few months ago and it definitely, oh, sorry. thank you. And it highlights that it is the life is too short. Make sure like, that's really what it does in terms of like the sad blessing of it is to really refocus you on what matters, which is an interesting thing that that's what you decided to do because it, it really proves to the fact that, that, you know, going back to passion, you have a passion for it. And you, you know, that became very clear. So so you jump in full time and uh, no money coming in. What, what was yeah. the first, like, did you guys worry about revenue or you like, we just got to get it to a hundred thousand. What was the first thought? So what happened was Austin and I decided that we were both going to go full time, but we didn't go full time at the same time. I okay. went full time September of 2016. He yeah. had to finish up his senior year of college. So he went full time May of 2017 when yeah. he graduated. And so for the first kind of like six months when I was just on my own, basically I was focusing on one, helping the content of the business. Austin in his time uh, that he could spend on it being in college, like he was helping more with like growth and the tech side. But then what we basically said is like, okay, we're turning this newsletter into a business. In order to turn it into a business, we need to make money. In order to make money, we need to have an audience. In order to have an audience, the product needs to be great. In order to have a great product, we can't be writing this anymore and we can't have college students writing it for us anymore. Cause that was kind of like the hack we had for a few years while I was at Morgan Stanley and I wasn't allowed to write the product is we had college students who were just doing it pro bono cause they wanted to get their writing in front of uh, thousands of subscribers. Yep. And so we knew we needed an actual full-time writer, but the issue is we couldn't fund it. Yep. And so we were like, we, we need to raise a little bit of money to be able to hire the first people to get the flywheel spinning. Yep. We had never raised money before. All we said was we don't want to raise from VCs, not because we actually knew anything, yeah. but more so because the few things we had heard were like horror stories about how VCs su suck the life out of your business. Yeah. Yeah. And I, I will say that that is not the case of all VCs, but that was that was our narrative. Yeah, they're vulture capitalists. That's what <laughs> <laughs> but what, 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 what I will say, even though our intuition was probably wrong, I think it was very right for us not to raise venture money as sure. a media business. So actually, like in, a, in some ways, we just made a, a, a good decision for the wrong rationale. Yep. And so we went, we raised, originally we were talking about raising 500K. We raised oh. 750K nice. from 28 individual investors. The way we found these investors, because again, like at the time, I think that's part of just like willing a business into existence is like you find the quickest path to get something done is like, we were like, we don't have money. We need money. How do we find money? We go to our warmest leads who already have money. Yeah. And so 
in in the early days, like in March and April, May of writing Morning Brew, we would do a weekly interview with a business leader or someone through our Michigan network who is an executive, and we'd feature that interview in the newsletter. So we had the spreadsheet of all these executives who had done interviews with the brew. We reached out to that spreadsheet. So of our 28 individual investors, 75% of them were either people that we interviewed or someone that they introduced us to. And so we ended up raising from uh, everyone from like individuals who were around our age, who worked in uh, banking with Austin to the University of Michigan, what wrote a big check to the former CEO of Time Warner Cable, wrote a check and it was checks between $2,500 and $100,000. Mm-hmm. Um, it was a convertible note that the, the uh, initial cap on the business was a $5 million cap. Mm-hmm. And, um, and that's what got the business going. And then we were just laser focused on turn newsletter as a hobby into newsletter as a business. The way you do it is three things, write, grow, and sell this newsletter and just do it and do it and do it. And that's all yep. we focused on from 20, 2016 to 2019. Wow. Got it. And so you got the writing going. And so 20, you said 2016 to 2019, when did you actually get your first advertising deal or your first revenue? 2017. So in the beginning of 2017, our first uh, advertising deal was actually one of our investors. Uh, He had sold his business to an agency um, and he basically convinced one of his clients. He was like, let's just try it with these guys. And he basically emailed us being like, hey guys, I got you some beer money for the weekend. And it was an advertiser that for three spots in Morning Brew paid $2,700 total, $900 a spot. Um, And, you know, just for context now, like, if a, if a partner wants to do a full day takeover in our newsletter, right. It's over a hundred thousand dollars, which is wild how, how it's scaled. Um, but that, that was our first one from a, an investor. The first one we actually brought in on our own was the university of Virginia. And again, it was just like all willing these things into existence. The way we got Virginia was I was on my LinkedIn one day, probably trying to recruit candidates to be writers. I got a LinkedIn message from the University of Virginia, and it was a sponsored message from their Masters of Accounting program being like, hey, are you interested in this program? And I said to myself, well, if they're targeting me for their Masters of Accounting program, they clearly have budget. They're trying to fill slots. Why don't I reach out to them and tell them we have a targeted audience of a lot of Alex Liebermans? And so UVA was our first like official sponsor. And then the first big sponsor we had was Discover Card. And you know, that was a whole story in itself, but basically the way we got discover card was through being relentless. We were, it was late 2017. We, I can't remember how many subscribers we were. It was probably like 75,000 and we get our first email from someone at spark, uh, the, the, uh, agency. And they email us saying that there's, we have an RFP for a financial service, financial services client. Austin and I had never heard of an RFP. We had no idea what that was. We were like, what is this thing? And yeah. and we look at it and basically it's a spreadsheet and it shows three slots that we have to fit, fill out impressions in our newsletter, which we didn't even know what impressions were at the time. It was like, there's a $100,000 investment, $250,000 investment and $500,000 investment. Put in what you'd be able to offer. And we were just like, this is wild. Like yeah. we, we've been s- selling a few ads for like $900 and we're talking yeah. about a $250,000 package. Yeah. So we filled out this RFP and Austin and I were like, we have to act like we've been here before. So like we, we you know, we don't yep. give them too much. Good advice. <laughs> yep. And, and so we fill it out. We send it in. The person from Spark is like, yeah, things are looking good. 
and then we never hear back. Uh, and like two weeks later, uh, and Austin and I are like crushed. And we f- follow up two weeks later and the person's like, yeah, sorry, you didn't win in the process. And Austin and I, like, because we didn't understand how the RFP process worked and that like we were in comp- competition with other publishers, yeah. we-, we didn't know any of this. So Austin and I were like heartbroken. We're like, we just had $250,000 dangled in front of us. And what, it- what did we fuck up that we could have gotten this? Yeah. And so then we basically spent, you know, a month doing just a crash course on agencies and the agency dynamic with publishers because we wanted to know what created basically this trauma for us. And what had happened in that process is at some point in filling out the RFP, we had asked the person from Spark, how did Discover even find out about us? And they were like, oh, someone's high up from Discover recommended we check out Morning Brew. And And so I had remembered that. And so when we were told that it was rejected, we were like, no, thanks so much for considering us. By the way, who was the person from Discover who had recommended the brew? It ended up being the former CMO. At the time, it was the current CMO of Discover Card, someone who uh, had found out about the brew from their child who found out through Morning Brew's ambassador program at their campus. So, of course, at the time, pr- probably would not do this anymore went on our email list of a couple thousand people, found, found the person's email, yeah. sent them an email and said, hey, just want to thank you so much for even recommending us to our agency. Would love to chat with you just to hear about any ideas you have for Morning Brew. Like I didn't want to position it as like, give yeah. us money. And so talked with them. They were super nice, gave recommendations. Then they were like, we need to do something together. So a week later, we got another RFP, which was clearly not, like not part of their planning cycle. Yeah. Clearly this person was like, just make it happen. And so we won our first RFP way earlier than we should have because the CMO of Discover was a reader of the brew and basically yep. willed it into happening. Listen, network and connections and all that, no matter how they come up, is really how most people end up in success on some totally. level. So that's huge. That's awesome. And so, and you were at 75,000 when you got that, yep. give or take. So that's awesome. So you, you didn't quit too early. You actually didn't, that goal you set wasn't necessary. So was that, was that enough money to actually like start truly cash flowing the business? Was it? Yes. So I would say of the $750,000, we burned probably 300 of it. So we actually raised a little too much, but like, you know, that's completely hindsight. We would have never raised less. Um, But yeah, we started cash flowing the business in call it 2018. Yeah. Um, and 2018 to 2019 is the year when we went from a hundred thousand subscribers to a million subscribers. Um, yeah. that's when we basically turned on, turned on like the paid acquisition engine at yeah. the time when Facebook, Instagram, all the platforms did not cost so much. Yeah. Um, <laughs> and, and yeah, like they worked extremely well Yeah. and th- it was basically just the formula was we got writing going, we got growing, going, we got selling, going, growing was working well because we were doing a little bit of everything from cross promotions to our referral program was super helpful for us. Uh-huh. And then we were cash flowing. The business was profitable because like, you know, the, the unit economics of a newsletter are amazing because you only yep. ever need one to three people writing it, no matter how many people you're writing for. Yep. And, um, and so we took that profit and we did one of two things. We either hired more people to write, grow or sell, or yep. we spent money to grow faster. Um, yep. And so that's how we 10 X in that year was a ton of paid acquisition. We went from basically, you know, spending in the beginning hundreds of dollars a week to kind of at the peak, $500,000 a month on paid acquisition. Awesome. And so now fast forwarding, uh, you know, 2020, 2020 happens and it did COVID have 
any effect on the business? Uh, for a short period of time, it had yep. a massive effect on the business. Yeah. Like, uh, zero for like two months. Yeah, I would say for like a month and a half, we yeah. we were worried that we weren't going to have a business. Um, it was a very interesting dynamic because yeah. on one side, we were very worried we weren't going to have a business. On the other side, our open rates and our engagement was crazy yeah. because people were looking for, one, people had time, yeah. people were scared. And so they went to news and specifically they were scared about their wallets. So they went to financial news. Yep. So like the engagement was crazy, but yeah, I mean, the March of 2020 and April of 2020, I just remember Austin and I basically saying like, what are we going to do to sustain the business? The nice thing was that we were very profitable and most of our profits were being put into paid acquisition. So we just turned that off for a few oh, months. Yeah. Yep. Uh, so like that created buffer. Well, and that's an but, interesting thing about your business is as much as you need more and more readers, your business doesn't sustain off new customers. It's right. you need to get advertisers. So exactly. Exactly. Turn that off. That's, that's awesome. Got it. it. Exactly. Because there was no incentive to spend yeah. on paid acquisition if we weren't yeah. going to get advertisers on the back end. And so, yeah. Um, you know, what basically happened was for a period of a week or two, Austin and I were brainstorming, like, how else can we make money with this business? Yeah. And so, you know, the really interesting thing is what we ended up landing on was education. Like this is when cohort based courses were becoming just starting to like get kind of become a thing like mm -hmm. platforms like teachable were around, but like Maven wasn't around. And we were uh -huh. like, let's launch some form of education for morning brew. And so we ended up testing it. We launched it. And now, like, I think education as a business at Morning Brew is going to be a $10 million plus business in the next two years. Yeah. Um, and that was just out of necessity of literally being like, how do we make short-term money to cover the cost of the business? Yep. No, and that, that is how it works. When your back is against the wall, you end up coming up with some of your best ideas that, because a lot of times you're just running the playbook, so to speak, when yep. you do those situations. And so I assume Recovered did great. You guys are having a record year. Yeah. So 2020, um, you know, we did basically, it was right around $21 million. Um, mm -hmm. and the previous year was 13 million top line. Oh, okay. Um, and, um, it was, it ended up being a record year and obviously we sold the business or majority of the business, mm -hmm. uh, basically exactly a year ago in October of 2020. And it was, a, you know, it was just like such a, it was not only such a crazy time, it was such a crazy time to sell a business. Who did you sell uh, it to again? Uh, to Business Insider, okay. um, who right. is owned by Axel Springer. Yeah. Um, and um, we, you know, we had been dis in discussions around the transaction, probably from like December of 2019 ask, to October, yeah. to October of 2020. Crazy during that time. And so not only was it a long process, and I think, uh, you know, any sort of sales, uh, a long process in general, I think it was an especially just like, weird and long process because it went from being like very intense and into it conversations to like the world is ending. And like the last thing anyone cares about right now is potentially selling the business. It's just like existing yeah. is the most right. important priority. That's yeah. That's awesome that you got that done during that time because transactions last year were not that big. Totally. Now they are this year. It's insane. But, and so two final questions for you. Number one, what's next? Um, so it's a great question. And um, the way that I, I would say I, I've had a lot of time to just like reflect on basically like what fills me up. Um, and I actually think one of the best answers for that um, is something that I read actually by Scott Belsky today. Um, 
chief product officer from Adobe, mm-hmm. where he basically said he's someone had posted on Twitter. I can't remember who it was, was like, if you make FU money, what do you do after that? Yep. And, you know, Alexis Ohanian responded like, I would start something called 776, which obviously ironically is what he's doing now. Um, But then Scott Belsky was like, I would do exactly what I'm doing now because I feel fully utilized. And I've realized about myself when I feel full utilization of myself, it is very strongly correlated with my happiness. And I I think that's extremely well said. Um, And so, you know, the way that I thought about it is like, I have more time now to focus on things like health, and mind, which are really important, but there's still a, a big chunk is morning brew for me, not uh-huh. running the day to day, but one being a content creator. So doing founders journal, which is my podcast can be yep. launching an, another interview show in the yes. beginning of uh, next year. But also, you know, I was thinking about it, like how do, how, as an executive chairman, do you add a lot of value to the business? And I would say there's two things from my perspective. It's, um, ideas and network. It's, uh, you know, Austin is an incredible operator and he has built an incredible machine with our business. And to me, if I can either provide amazing input into that machine, uh, or if I can help accelerate the machine, I am adding my kind of like leveraged value to the business. So whether that's coming up with new franchises or shows to come up with, because I really think like creativity is one of the last things to not be commoditized or network back to the point of like, if we can get amazing people to host our shows that already have built an audience, like that can move the needle. So that's time on the business, on the brew. And outside of that, honestly, I'm, I'm still trying to think about it. Um, I'm spending a fair bit of time angel investing and I love spending time with founders. Um, but, uh, I'm, I kind of think about it as like, I'm in exploring mode right now. And I'm just like exploring a lot of different interests and ideas from real estate to NFTs just to see what sticks. Yeah, no, it's, you got to explore. And then, yeah, I think that's part of anyone's discovery. Like you ended on morning brew as a passion. A lot of people need to keep doing that for 20 years before they land on their morning brew. And then again, when you move on to the next thing, it can take another one year, five years, 10 years, two months, whatever, to find that thing that you want to jump. And I would say the the biggest thing for me is that um, I think a really important thing is like kind of, I reset after selling the business and moving out of the CEO role into the executive chairman role is I, I, I'm obviously someone who put a lot, puts a lot of pressure on myself. And one of the things I put pressure on myself about is I vividly remember a conversation with my girlfriend where she was basically like, if you don't build an, another business that is bigger than morning brew, will you feel like a failure? And I said, yes. And, and, and I spent a lot of time thinking about that. Mm-hmm. And I think a lot of that comes from a place of being a constant striver and c- candidly, for a long time, caring a little bit too much about like what people in like the Twitter VC startup echo chamber think of think. Yeah. But I think at the end of the day, like where I've kind of shifted my mind is like really being grateful and happy about spending time, how I want to spend it in the present yep. and sure it's okay to strive. But if that is depriving me of being happy right now, that is not okay. Yep. And at the end of the day, like the outcome of building say a billion dollar business, like that is not what the focus should be. If I, if I build something that I truly find joy in the process and it's worth a million dollars or a hundred thousand dollars, but I truly love it. Like that's enough at the end of the day. Like if I feel utilized and I feel happy doing it, that's all that matters. And I think that shift 
honestly, it's taken a while for me to figure out. Yeah, no, it's a hard one for people. And, 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 you know, it's a nice thing to be able to get to. And so last question for me, I know we're coming up here. Yeah, yeah, yeah. What is the, uh, if you were telling someone just getting started that wants to pursue their dreams, one piece of advice that you either wish you were told or you were told that actually set you on your path, what would be that one thing you would tell someone, again, going for their dreams? Um, one, uh, I would say be realistic that you are able to do it. Mm -hmm. Um, because again, like if you can't provide for your livelihood, maybe it's not the right time to do it. And I also think there's a lot of opportunity to like have a side hustle that evolves into a full-time thing. And the second thing I would just say is relentless focus on the product. Yeah. Um, at the end of the day, it's like morning brew succeeded because we were relentlessly focused on making a newsletter as good as humanly possible for four years, thanklessly. Like that, that yeah. is why we succeeded is we made a great product that was differentiated. And at a time when people said newsletters weren't sexy, but we knew people were enjoying it. We saw the replies to our email coming back to us and that we were just super focused on that. Makes sense. Well, Alex, this has been awesome. Thank you so much for coming on Hawk Talk. Th- thanks so much for having me. Of course. Hawk Media is your outsourced CMO and marketing team. We'll dive into your business for free, identify opportunities in your marketing strategy, then get you teamed up with individual experts, all month to month and a la carte. Whether you're looking for a Facebook advertiser, a web designer, or a fractional CMO, we can help you drive growth for your business. We've successfully grown over 2,500 brands, and we're here to help you too. No matter your goal, we've got you covered. To learn more, visit hawkmedia.com. That's hawk with an E, media.com. You've been listening to Hawk Talk. To ensure you never miss an episode, subscribe to the show in your favorite podcast player. If you're listening in Apple Podcasts, we'd love for you to give us a quick rating for the show. Just tap the number of stars you think this podcast deserves. Thank you so much for listening. Until next time.